You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. We're recording this episode the day before the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and this is our pro-life episode. So if you're listening to us on the bus to the march, on the plane, at the airport, on the metro, while you're at the march, while you're walking to the march, while you're on the bus home, we salute you. This week, Michelle Rosa will ask what would really happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned soon. Jonah McEwen looks into a push to legalize assisted suicide in New Mexico, and a family shares a beautiful story about adoption. But first, here's what you need to know. Cardinal Donald Wuerl will not celebrate the Mass for Life tomorrow, which is held each year before the National March for Life in Washington, D.C. Instead, the Apostolic Nuncio will be celebrating the Mass, which is organized each year by the Archdiocese of Washington. President Trump's nominee for Attorney General, William Barr, has said his Catholic faith will not impede his leadership with the Department of Justice. Barr is a practicing Catholic and a member of the Knights of Columbus. He had confirmation hearings this week. And finally, the Pope has advanced the sainthood causes of 17 women, including 14 religious sisters killed in Spain at the start of the Spanish Civil War. Swiss laywoman Blessed Marguerite Bays will be canonized this year. Bays was a secular Franciscan who received the stigmata. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Joan McKeown. This week, there was more news in the church about the ongoing clerical abuse scandal. News about Cardinal Wuerl receiving an allegation against Archbishop Theodore McCarrick in 2004, and questions about what he did with that allegation and whether he told the truth in the Archdiocese of Washington. That's a really important story. And Ed Condon and I broke it down, talked about what's going on in the life of the church, in a conversation that we're going to put out today as a kind of bonus episode, some bonus content. So after you listen to this episode, our pro-life episode, you can look for that wherever you get your podcasts. So what would happen if Roe versus Wade were overturned tomorrow or next week or next year? CNA's Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Michelle Rosa spoke with Kathleen Gallagher of the New York State Catholic Conference about that question. You know, we wanted to talk about the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Some people think that overturning Roe v. Wade would make abortion illegal nationwide, but that's not the case, is it? No, absolutely not. Uh, if Roe is ever overturned, and I'm of the mind that it's not going to be overturned anytime soon, but if it were, it would just throw the issue of abortion back to the states, to the legislatures and the courts, which um, made the decisions on abortion before Roe. Now, some states are trying to pass legislation that would affect abortion laws if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned. Can you tell us about the Reproductive Health Act in New York and why does the Catholic Conference oppose it? Yes. Well, the Reproductive Health Act is a bill that's been around actually in our state legislature for 12 years. But uh, our governor, Andrew Cuomo, and the Democrats who now control our state legislature say it's urgent that they enact this bill now um, because the threat of Roe being overturned by the high court is so imminent, they say. Um, so this is a bill that they say will simply codify Roe versus Wade in New York state law. 
Um, that is just not true. This bill goes way beyond Roe versus Wade uh, in many ways. For example, it specifically empowers non-physicians to perform abortions, uh, even late-term abortions. Roe versus Wade never gave permission to non-doctors to perform abortions. It would allow abortion in the final trimester of pregnancy for any reason at all. It would remove all criminal penalties for abortion. So it takes abortion, which is right now in our criminal code, and moves it to the public health code because, as the abortion advocates say, this is just another health service. This is a mainstream health procedure. Um, so they want to mainstream abortion. Um, but by removing it from the criminal code, they get rid of the crime of abortion, which is the only crime we have right now to punish a perpetrator if he terminates a woman's pregnancy against her will. It also removes a portion of our public health law, which requires care, medical care uh, for infants accidentally born alive during an abortion. It's really um, the abortion rights proponents wish list. It gives them everything they want. It it elevates abortion to the level of a fundamental right in New York State, specifically and in the language of the law. So it's a really sad day for New York because um, they plan to pass this into law on January 22nd, the anniversary of Roe, um, which is a day that we as Catholics solemnly commemorate the lives lost and the women harmed. And here in New York, they'll be cheering and, and wildly celebrating this as progress for women. It really hurts my heart um, that this is happening. Do you think that people in New York understand what is in this legislation, some of these more extreme measures that you just described? People are starting to comprehend what this is all about, but I still think it's kind of amorphous and the secular media out there just simply repeats what the abortion proponents are saying, which is this just codifies Roe versus Wade. It's a simple update, they say, to New York state law. And my final question for you, Kathleen, what can Catholics do to be involved in the pro-life movement? I've come to the conclusion that the most important thing that we can all do to help spread the pro-life word is just talk the pro-life talk, you know, not just to our state lawmakers or our federal lawmakers, but to our neighbors, uh, to the lady at the hair salon and to the man who you work next to in the cubicle at work. You know, we need to spread the culture of life person by person by person. That's the only way we're going to change minds and hearts. And that's the only way eventually that we're going to change the law. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here and joining us today. Thanks for having me on. America's population is aging. By the year 2060, the number of Americans aged 65 and older is projected to double from 46 million today to 98 million. As our country ages, Questions about health care, about human rights, about pain and suffering are going to get more difficult and more controversial. This month, the New Mexico legislature is considering a bill about assisted suicide. Our producer, Jonah McEwen, spoke with Bishop James Wall of the Diocese of Gallup and others about the bill. And let us also show the women of this state that we will not allow far away federal judges to determine autonomy over their bodies. 
After the election of a largely democratic state government last November, the New Mexico legislature is set to debate two bills pertaining to significant life issues. The old criminal abortion law of this state must go. Bring me that bill and I will sign it. One of the bills, which has strong support from new Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, would decriminalize abortion, a move to protect the practice if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned by the Supreme Court. But pro-life advocates are also concerned about a bill that would legalize physician-assisted suicide for terminally ill patients. Experts say wording of this bill is much more vague than laws of other states that have legalized assisted suicide in the past, such as Oregon. This one jumped out at me as being uh, not only different than the others, but uh, far more expansive. Alex Schadenberg is executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, an international organization with its headquarters in Ontario. He said if passed, this bill would allow medical professionals other than doctors, including nurses and physician assistants, to administer lethal drugs to a terminally ill patient. In addition, the drugs could be prescribed to a patient without the doctor ever having seen them in person. To me, this is a crazy thing because we're talking about life and death, you know, life and death. The bill would allow a doctor to prescribe a patient lethal drugs via telemedicine. So you uh, have a terminal condition, supposedly, and this is going to be approved that you can die by assisted suicide, but your interview for this process is done over uh, a screen. The bill would allow patients to choose to die for mental health reasons, too. Not only that, the bill would reduce the waiting period between a doctor prescribing the lethal drugs and the prescription being filled from 15 days to 48 hours. We're talking about life and death, so it's obvious you could be depressed today. And uh, the purpose of the waiting period is uh, not to be onerous and forced suffering people to have to live 14 more days. It's that you might be depressed, and the only way to ensure that this, uh, this your real will, so to say, is to create a waiting period. Most other assisted suicide laws, such as the one in Oregon, have an explicit requirement that the patient must be a resident of the state. Schadenberg said this bill does include this, but the requirement is not only awkwardly worded, it's also very weakly defined. It does define adult as a resident of the state. Now, why this really threw me, it says adult is a resident of the state who is 18 years of age or older. So that would be a residency requirement. Uh, but the reason I missed it is it's not actually under the qualifications for assisted suicide. It's, it's just under the definition of adult. Now, what makes it even more confusing is the bill doesn't actually use the word adult. It uses the word individual. So you can see how I missed it. New Mexico already has one of the highest poverty rates in the nation and has one of the highest suicide rates as well, especially within its vast Native American reservations. Bishop James Wall of the Diocese of Gallup is one of the bill's most vocal opponents. We should be asking questions about how can I you know, take care of this person? How can I love this person? How can I suffer with this person as well? And ultimately, how can I respect the inherent dignity of being created in the image and likeness of God? He echoed Schadenberg's criticism of the drastic shortening of the waiting period that this bill proposes. Pain, suffering, struggle, illness, many of these things can be transitory, they can be passing. And a lot of times when we present something like this to someone in that, that frame of mind or that state of mind, you know, they're, they're not able to see clearly that this could be something that would just simply uh, be passing. 
we're all very, very familiar with stories of people who were given, you know, three months or six months or a year to live, and they were able to overcome uh, their their illness and they they live perfectly healthy, normal lives today. And what would you say to those who support the bill because they see it, you know, as the merciful option to those who are in great pain and perhaps don't see a reason to remain in pain longer than they have to? You know, really the heart of understanding mercy is is giving something to someone. So our the reference point for a Catholic for mercy is always the cross of Christ. And Christ gives of his life so that you and I and the world might know forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And when we look at physician-assisted suicide, it's not giving anything. It's actually taking something away. And taking a good away, it's taking away uh, someone's life. Sometimes people feel that they're going to be a burden on their family, but it's, it's anything but a burden. It's additional time with the person. It's to be able to take care of the person. It's to be able to love the person. My father died in 1999 from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease is essentially a death sentence. And my father um, could have probably chosen to go down this, this route, but he understood and valued not only his own life, but also it gave my family opportunity to show him love, to show him care, to be merciful toward him, mercy in the truest sense. The current legislative session in New Mexico ends March 16th. Until then, lawmakers in the state will continue to debate both the assisted suicide bill and the measure to decriminalize abortion. Bishop Wall said most of the support for assisted suicide comes from outside New Mexico. Major advocacy groups based in Oregon, such as Death with Dignity, have been responsible for writing and supporting assisted suicide legislation in states across the U.S. To date, six states and Washington, D.C. have legalized assisted suicide. A lot of this stuff comes from outside the states. And what they do is they'll target a particular state and say, okay, this is a vulnerable state. Let's start pouring money into, into this one. A nation that tries to play God will, will soon be brought to its knees. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. So we have three kids, Max, Pia, and Davy, and two of them, Max and Pia, are adopted. Max is seven and Pia is six. And adoption is, for us at least, an amazing thing. I, I won't forget going to meet Max when he was 11 days old in the hospital, holding him in my arms and knowing that he was my son. But I won't forget also knowing the heartache and the pain and the courage of his birth mother and his birth father, the difficult choice that they faced, and um, the kind of love that they exhibited in choosing adoption for their son. I, I won't forget the same thing meeting my daughter Pia on the day she was born, and I won't forget the courage and the love and the kindness of her birth parents. Every adoption is different. Every adopted person has their own story. And every one of those stories has elements of beauty and love and courage, and every one of those stories has elements that are tough. This week, we talked with Father Ryan Kalp and his parents, Sherry and Randy Kalp, about their adoption story. Here's Father Ryan. I know that I was adopted when I was three days old. I'm just a little guy. And I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is also the town I was raised in. And my parents, who adopted me, couldn't have their own children after trying for many years. Um, the doctors told them it just wasn't going to happen. And the doctor also knew of a, 
of an unwed mother who was looking for um, a family to give her baby to. And so through uh, the doctor, he matched up my biological mom with my adoptive parents. And that's how it all started. And, I, you know, lawyers got involved in all the legal stuff. But that's how uh, it originated. And that's how I came to be with the family um, that I call mom and dad. Well, it all happened pretty fast. It was about a month after we had the conversation with the doctor about adoption being a viable alternative for us. And <clears throat> out of the blue, I received a phone call from the doctor at work one day saying that he was aware of a mother that was expecting to deliver and she was willing to put her child up for adoption and wanted to know if we were still interested. And he said, well, we'll let you know how the mother is doing, you know, how the pregnancy um, develops. And he thought that it would probably be, I think he said a month, five weeks or something like that before she was due to deliver. Well, I don't think it was what much more than a week went by. And we received another phone call. And in essence, they said, you better get ready. Uh, the mother just went to the hospital. Well, I believe he was born then within a day or two of that. Mm -hmm. So we had like, what, maybe a week to get ready. <laughs> and here we were, um, let's say very excited parents, or about to be parents, uh, to have a little baby that was coming into our home. I don't remember what it was like to be with anyone else. And I think I spent those three days in the hospital um, until um, the lawyers brought me to my parents' house. And so a lot of people have hospital photos and I have photos of, of a lawyer carrying my little car seat into my parents' house. And so the proverbial stork, I guess, that was fulfilled by these lawyers. I can remember when he, they knocked on the door when we heard they were coming I looked at the lawyer and I said, I hope he has instructions pinned to him because I'm not sure I know what to do. We went out and bought a changing table and a crib and a dresser, and that was all we had. So, you know, but it was enough. I've always known I was adopted. It's something that my parents just told me from very early on. People often ask, when did you know that you were adopted or when did you find out? And the answer is I, I, I never found out. I kind of always just knew. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when did you find out what your name was? It's just something that you've always known. This is when Sesame Street was big on TV. And we got a book for that, and I don't know if somebody gave it to us or what, but it was about I Am Adopted. And from the time he was a baby, we read that book to him. You know, he didn't understand it because he didn't understand language at that time. But we kept reading it to him, and then we talked about him being adopted and how special he was, and that he belonged with us, and he was going to stay with us. Friends from kindergarten talk about that. When I got to kindergarten, I was I was very proud of it. I would tell people, like, I'm special because I'm adopted. And uh, it was just something that I knew very early on. He loved to play soccer. He was very outgoing with friends. He had lots of friends, yeah. both boys and girls when he was in grade school. He was involved in so many clubs. I said, when he went to Pius, I said, I can tell that he was very active because every time he joined something, I had to buy a t-shirt and we had more t-shirts than <laughs> anything. So I know he was involved and 
really, I think, really well liked by all of his classmates and yeah. friends. So, but it is amazing. Even though I was adopted at such a young age, there is something about adoption that that does stick with you, no matter no matter what age it happened at. And now that we know more about modern psychology and and more studies on this. Um, those nine months in the womb um, affect all of us. And though we can't express it with words all the time, um, that experience and then the subsequent um, breaking of that relationship in a certain sense um, does affect someone. And so I didn't see it um, as a negative thing, um, knowing I was adopted and, and learning and kind of growing and what that means as I got older. There was certain curiosity um, surrounding you know, my birth mother and circumstances and things like that. Um, but it was never for me seen as, um, as a negative, at least consciously. I actually have met my birth mother. I met her about two years ago, two years ago, uh, on accident, um, at a restaurant, (laughs) um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. So, I knew what she looked like because um, I'd con- I'd found out I knew her name and uh, I'd found her in college and we'd emailed back and forth and then we were friends on Facebook and uh, um, she had told me you know I'd, she said I bet you have some questions for me and I said yes I have many <laughs> and we started uh, just talking and uh, kind of the circumstances surrounding um, my birth and and she had talked about and mentioned that. Her first option or her first thought was to have an abortion. She just wasn't ready to have um, a child and she was scared and um, and all the circumstances that surround an unplanned pregnancy were very present for her. Um, and so at first she told me there, there was just something in her, though she had abortion appointments scheduled, that there was something in her that just couldn't do it and couldn't follow through. And so she ended up pursuing adoption instead. I will always quote Ryan's story that he should have been aborted. Because he was on, his mother was on the way to abort him. And the Holy Spirit was watching out over him and had certain things fall into place that she didn't do, follow through with it. So I get, you know, in that way, I think we're even more blessed. And I think it made our pro-life stance even stronger. Yeah, we have to say prayers of gratefulness or thankfulness that she changed her mind. I I say prayer for her quite often. Well, I think it really completes us. It fills a a void. Um, Of course, we regret that we didn't have our own children, but Ryan really was the ointment, I guess you could say, the balm that soothed or calmed us about um, having lost our own children, you know, but... um, they were just onward and upward when, when he came into our lives. I mean, it just, everything kind of fell into place. It seemed like everything was so right. We found out that we were, that we were the one, the birth mother picked us about Thanksgiving time. And I can remember going to church on Thanksgiving day and saying prayers of Thanksgiving that our family was going to be complete. Yeah. For any women out there experiencing unplanned pregnancy, and if adoption is at all on your heart there, to know that amidst the fear or the anxiety that may be there, that the Lord is so close and is so present. Um, In my own story, I can see his hand working from the very beginning on the heart of my birth mother, 
um, to the heart of my of my parents and just carrying me to this to this moment and where I am today. And so while there may be fear and anxiety surrounding it, that to know that that God is so very present with you. And for those who are surrounding young women right now, I think it can often be um, just easy to say, especially in, in our pro-life culture, just, well, just give the baby up for adoption. We don't understand how hard that is all the time and how how hard of a choice that is to give your baby up for adoption. And so uh, in the pro-life community, to always seek to have just a very compassionate heart for women who find themselves in, in situations of an unplanned pregnancy, to not simply just say, well, just give the baby up for adoption, but to be willing to walk with them. I've been blessed by adoption in my life, um, but I know that it's not easy, and I know that it's not just cut and dry. I'm thankful for that the Lord has worked in this way, but it's not something that's so simple. And so just in the pro-life community, continue to uh, just to pray for a deeper compassion surrounding the complexity of, of the reality of adoption and the way it affects those who, who adopt um, children who are adopted and those who give their children up for adoption. Well, that's our podcast for this week. If you are at the March for Life, we salute you. We love the March for Life, and we know that the fruit it bears is to transform people, to remind people who go, people who see it, uh, people who hear about it, uh, to remind them that there are hundreds of thousands of people in this country who are willing to go out in the cold in January, often in the snow, to witness to the dignity of life, to call for a culture of life, to pray for an end to abortion. But let's not make the March for Life a one-day event. Let's make our commitment to building a culture of life an everyday part of who we are, an everyday part of our faith, everyday part of our friendships and our conversations. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced by Jonah McEwen and Kate Vike. Our executive producer is the great Kate Vike. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>